Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS podcast. This is season three. If you missed last week's discussion with Professor Chris Higgins from Colorado, US, I encourage you to have a listen. But it's not all about water exposure. We can also be exposed to these compounds through the fish we eat, through the milk we drink or the eggs we eat, in some cases through the lettuce we eat. So you can be exposed through a wide variety of foods that you might consume, so it's not just the water, but it's also we work and live in environments where these coatings have been present, and we still don't quite understand how use of these compounds in consumer products necessarily translates to kind of exposure or your fast food wrapper. How does that get into you if it's in your fast food wrapper? But we do know that there's these associations which are pretty commonly found between eating things like fast food and elevated levels in your blood. So when you think about the complexity in terms of exposure, it's not just your drinking water. It's not just the food. It's the materials the food come in. And there may also be additional sources of exposure that we just haven't understood yet. It's a really informative and engaging interview and I learned so much more from him regarding PFAS. So I encourage you to jump on and have a listen to episode 18. Today's episode is an interview with Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology recorded in Brisbane on the 17th of February 2020. Lisa has been involved in the Human Biomonitoring Program in Australia, which monitors a range of contaminants in the blood of the general population. The strength of our work on PFAS is our Human Biomonitoring Program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples, which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness, community or government awareness of PFAS. Lisa has also been awarded a grant from the NHMRC to continue her research. Now to today's interview. Uh, Lisa, can you please tell our listeners briefly about your qualifications or your field of study? So I did my PhD in environmental toxicology at the University of Queensland and that was looking at the sources and exposure of brominated flame retardants Mm -hmm. in the Australian population. Okay, so when did you begin work on PFAS? So as part of my PhD looking at flame retardants, we were collecting samples and at that stage we also used those samples really out of scientific curiosity to have a look for PFAS. And you have been the lead author of several studies to do with PFAS. Can you tell us just a little bit about when your first paper was published? The first paper was published in 2006 and that was actually the work of Anna Carmen, who's from Sweden but she used our samples and that was the first detection of PFAS in Australian samples that we were aware of at that time. And where did those samples come from? Back in 2002, uh, Professor Jochen Mueller was asked to take part in the National Dioxin Program. The National Dioxin Program had various components and included a component looking at samples of blood from the Australian population to determine average background levels of dioxins. Those blood samples then became our human biomonitoring program and we've been collecting samples every two years since 2002. So those samples have been analysed for PFAS and that is what uh, you know, has made up all of the papers and, and the work that we have been able to do on PFAS has come from that human biomonitoring program. 
Who initiated that biomonitoring program? Was that Professor Jochen Mueller? Yes, so Professor Jochen Mueller from the University of Queensland. The National Dioxin Program was a Commonwealth Government initiative and as part of that we collected 10,000 human blood samples which was stratified by age, gender and region. And based on the success of that, you know, every two years we kept that collection going um, and have been doing that and that has enabled us to see trends over time for different chemicals, including PFAS. Okay, so that was dioxin work that you were originally commissioned for by the Australian government. Yes. Uh, We won't get into dioxin today, but... um, When you compare the work that you've done, though, with dioxins and other chemicals versus PFAS, is PFAS very different? PFAS is different and, you know, like the physical chemical characteristics of PFAS are different and I won't go into too much detail about that. That's not my area. But, you know, the National Dioxin Program was really at a time when we found low levels of dioxins and not a lot has really been done since that time. Whereas PFAS, you know, our first paper was published in 2006 and that was from our 2002 samples and that was the first detection of PFAS in Australia and it was you know there wasn't really um, a lot of community um, I guess awareness it wasn't PFAS wasn't you know sort of a talking point at that time but progressively we kept collecting samples and kept you know we included PFAS in um, the the suite of chemicals that we were analyzing for and that was you know we started to see some really interesting trends with mm-hmm. that data over time. Can you just tell us a little bit about some highlights or, or what was significant or important? So with the blood, uh, the human biomonitoring program, those samples are pooled by age, gender and region. So we don't know a lot about them. We're not using them to look for health effects or cause and effect. We're just looking for trends. So what we have seen and of course what other researchers around the world have seen with regards to gender is that females have lower levels of PFAS than males um, and you know it's been speculated that that's due to blood loss. So we're talking like menstruation? Yeah, menstruation, childbirth, that kind of thing. You know if you look at hemochromatosis patients who have to give blood regularly for their medical condition, we see lower levels in those patients compared to non-patients. So it's, it's that blood loss that we see that difference in. And that's been noticed in firefighters as well. There's been a little bit of research done there where firefighters that give blood are lower than some of their peers with PFAS. Yeah. Are, you, are you aware of that at all? I think anecdotally, but I haven't really looked into that. Yeah. But so you've heard it along the way. Yes. Yeah. Um, You know, with some of the traditional persistent organic pollutants like dioxins, we see these age trends where the levels are highest in adults. You know, they've been exposed for the longest time. The chemicals are no longer being used. So kids and young people at that lower level because there just hasn't been that exposure. With the PFAS um, group of chemicals, we see really different trends and not clear trends like that increasing uh, with age as, as we did with dioxins. The other trend that we see because we've been collecting and analysing since 2002 is that we have seen this very nice decrease in PFAS concentrations over time um, in all age groups from 2002 up to our most recent collection that we've had analysed, which was our 2017 samples. Mm-hmm. So we'll, talk, we'll come back to that decrease in a minute, but just on those trends, in, in your... Um 2009 paper you talk about the u-shaped trend observed for PFOA you said of particular interest is the u-shaped trend observed 
for PFOA with higher concentrations observed in the youngest and oldest age groups. Can you just explain that U-shape for us? So with the youngest age groups, I mean, with most chemicals, there is likely to be a transfer from mother to baby and then also through breast milk. And it's, you know, not just PFAS, but lots of chemicals. You can detect them in breast milk. Um, Again, like with the dioxins in the older population age groups, it's likely related to that history of exposure. That is probably the best way to explain that Mm. than the half-lives of the chemicals. So that U-shape, is it pretty typical to see with any kind of chemical exposure or is it it something unique to PFAS? I'd have to have a think about that. Um, It's not I wouldn't say that it's unique to PFAS. Look, we see different trends with different chemicals and also at different time points. I'll reword it. Why did you say it was of particular interest that you shaped trend? I think I'd have to have a look at the paper and the data again to answer that one for you. Okay. Is there anything that has surprised you, Lisa, about the PFAS work that you have done or anything you have found of particular interest? Well, I guess that when, uh, you know, we first... Jochen first initiated a collaboration with Anna Carmen in Sweden to analyse our samples. There was really nothing happening in Australia about PFAS. You know, no one was talking about it. People weren't aware of the contaminated sites. And for us, it was quite interesting that it's another group of chemicals and, oh, look, they're detected and they're at levels that might be similar to Europe, they might be higher. You know, it was really that sort of scientific interest that started then, you know, as there was increasing interest from the community and and government, it was just really great that we had this data that we could then provide to give an idea of the background levels and also to give an idea of what's been happening over time. Okay, so when we talked in the pre-interview, we talked about this work that's been done in Queensland is um, unique. Nobody else in Australia has been doing that. Is that correct? So look, there are other research groups who look at PFAS, certainly, but with our human biomonitoring program that has been going since 2002 and, you know, we've initially it was just with blood samples, we've added in urine samples and there are various researchers who work on different components of this program. Our samples are collected from southeast Queensland and have been since 2002. So they do really give us an indication of what the average background concentrations are in southeast Queensland. And because I'm from Sydney, not familiar with southeast Queensland, what sort of area is that capturing? I mean, you can't name all the suburbs, but is it a broad area or a very tiny area? Look, it is a broad area. So with our blood collection, as you can see in any of our papers where we describe that, the only information that we have for the samples is date of birth, date of collection, gender and their postcode. So when we are collecting those samples we look at those postcodes and it is a reasonably broad area that covers southeast Queensland postcodes. Mm -hmm. That would include Brisbane where we're talking today? Yes including Brisbane and outer areas outer suburbs. Would it include Oakey? I'm not familiar with southeast Queensland region. So Oakey is you know of course further out maybe about two hours from Brisbane. We don't specifically include any postcodes and we you know as I said we started this back in 2002 before anyone was sort of thinking that there were any sites of interest we don't exclude any postcodes either it's quite difficult to get these samples but I do know that there are and there have been individual studies looking specifically at Oki. Are you involved with that work at all? Not with the specific individual studies no. 
So you're talking about the work that the ANU is doing on the PFAS health study there? Yes. So the PFAS health study would be looking at individual people, whereas our work is just providing data to give background levels. So then if you are in an area where your water or your soil has been contaminated and you get a blood test, if you've got nothing to compare that to, um, no sort of, you know, standard value, then it could be quite difficult to interpret that. So what we're providing, what we've realised we're providing, is that sort of standard background concentration for South East Queensland, that if people get a blood test, any comparisons can be made, if it's occupational exposure, can be made with this background data. Why is it important to have background levels in Australia? With the chemicals that we have looked at, looking at dioxins and flame retardants and PFAS, they are part of the Stockholm Convention and Australia is a party to that treaty. And so as such, the government, you know, has a role to monitor those chemicals. So first of all, you know, human biomonitoring programs to provide background data are really important for Australia to report back. Okay, these are the levels in Australia. That's one component. The other component is now that we know that there are contaminated sites and that there are individuals who do get their own blood tests, you know, we know that there are occupational studies happening. There needs to be some control data with which to compare those potentially elevated results. That's true. Talking about pooled sampling, can you just explain what pooled sampling means? So the technique that we have used to obtain our samples and our data is that we have pooled samples together. So originally, as I said, the National Dioxin Program, we had to get a representative sample um, and analysis you know, was quite expensive at that time. And so it was decided that the best way to get an average was to pool or combine 100 samples into um, one pool and analyse that. So what that means is that you have 100 blood serum samples and they're stratified by age, gender and region. You take one milliliter out of each one of those, put them together, have that analysed and that is the equivalent of analysing the individual 100 samples and taking an average. Instead of doing it mathematically, we have combined them all into one and we have analysed that one sample to give us that average concentration. Okay, so just on the age groups, I think you looked at six age groups. Are you saying that all the age groups are combined together or were there six different pools? So we actually have in our general two-yearly collections, we have 24 pools. So we have six age groups. Those are 0 to 4, 5 to 15, 15 to 30, 31 to 45, 45 to 60 and over 60 years. We have males and females and for each of those pools we do a replicate. So we actually get 200 samples, we split that into two lots of 100 because then if the analysis is done and suddenly you've got this really high level and your replicate shows a really low level, then we think something's gone wrong. In the analysis or the laboratory collection? Exactly. So in the analysis there could be some kind of contamination um, or it could be you know something when we were pooling or collecting the samples. With 100 samples, we feel that there is enough dilution that you're not going to see. If there's one person with a very, very elevated level who's contributed to that group, it's certainly not going to be very apparent because it's diluted with the other 99 samples. And that is why it's called background concentrations. Okay. So my question to that is, if you do have people with high levels 
If you use the pooling sampling technique, wouldn't that mask areas that might be particularly high with PFAS levels? So we haven't done any pooling in areas where it has been suggested that there is or it's known that there is contamination. You know, I think that is really best for the individual PFAS study. The idea of the pooling is to give that background data and by certain age groups to see if there is any trends, you know, and like with gender, we do know then that females have lower levels. It's really just to give those averages. So, you know, we're not looking at health effects, we're not looking at cause and effect, we're just providing averages that can be used to make comparisons with other data. Does the P95 mean 95th percentile? Yes, so with the pooled data, the disadvantage is that we can't estimate or calculate the minimums and the maximums. So we did uh, do a study where we worked with a statistician um, from the US, Dr. Lisa Alwood, and she used NHANES data. So NHANES is the big US study where they do use individuals. And she looked at the variation and the minimums and the maximums. And she helped us to do this back calculation to try to estimate where we think our 95th percentile or our highest concentrations would be using our pooled data. So a lot of statistical analysis in there and a bit complicated. Can you explain 95th percentile really simply? So with our work, the idea of calculating the 95th percentile was to calculate the concentrations that would be at that maximum end, which we can't do with our pooling. It's an estimation to calculate that maximum and then also looking at the minimum concentrations. Is the 95th percentile useful to the general population to understand their PFAS levels? I think it needs to be put into context of how that's being calculated and so I think that you really would need to speak with whoever's provided you with that data to uh, determine exactly how that's been calculated. Do you think that the continued monitoring of PFAS chemicals in Australia is an important thing to do both for background levels and also individuals? So certainly for background levels, since we have seen this decrease over time, if you want to be comparing occupationally exposed or residentially exposed concentrations, you need an up-to-date background level. So for that reason, it is important to keep monitoring because we have seen a decrease. Are we now going to plateau? Are we going to keep on decreasing? Are there secondary exposures that we might be exposed to? Will we see an increase? I think to stay up to date, it is really important to keep that monitoring going. When we talk about secondary sources of contamination, the primary source of contamination in Australia has been the PFAS and the firefighting foams, as I understand it, has been a primary source of contamination. Is that what you understand? I think that there are several sources of contamination. Certainly, if you have been exposed to water that has been contaminated, then that would be your primary source. But I think we can see in our human biomonitoring that the general population are exposed and they're not necessarily in a residential area that is a contaminated, you know, or potentially contaminated area. So there are certainly several different sources of exposure. That's what makes it important to have the background so you can always minus that off from the levels that people are exposed to in potentially contaminated areas. Where do you think the general population is getting their PFAS from? There is on many, many documents in Australia, they do say that contaminated food and contaminated water would be considered the main source for the general population. Would you agree? So certainly within the food chain, 
so many chemicals are you know exposure occurs from the food chain from products that have been treated you know it is widely discussed about food wrappers and that kind of thing I'm not quite sure about water concentrations in uh, non-contaminated areas. You can't definitively say why the general population has exposures of PFAS in their blood. But we do know that it could be from contaminated food, water, their kind of primary sources. Perhaps household dust has been contributing a fair amount of PFAS to people. Um, What do you believe to be the main sources of PFAS exposure to the general population? Well, that is actually a very interesting question now that I am thinking about how you've phrased it. And one of the NHMRC projects that has been funded that will be started this year is to look at exposure. So I guess in Australia, we don't have a lot of data on that. But this project will look at, you know, food and air and dust in homes not sort of potentially contaminated areas, but just the general person, you know, living, you know, whether it's urban or regional, uh, looking at what are the sources that are causing that exposure. Good, and hopefully they'll be able to contribute how much exposure you're getting from those sources because up until now we hear it's in Teflon fry pans and our waterproof jackets, but nobody knows how much you're actually getting from those materials. Yes, and look, those exposure studies can be complicated and they can be confounders, so there can be different issues that might overlap each other, but certainly that is something that will be looked at in this um, future NHMRC project. And I imagine that will also, alongside your work, give it quite a good understanding of how the general population in Australia are being exposed to PFAS. Would that be correct? Well, look, certainly once you know exposure pathways, you're a step closer to being able to reduce exposure. You know, if you know that it's in dust and say, for example, it's coming from carpets or something like that, then if those chemicals are no longer used in those products and then we'll see decreases in exposure. But yes, you need to know where the intake is coming from before you can decrease that. And that work with the exposures is not your work. It's some other researcher that has been given a grant under the NHMRC. Would that be Joachim Mueller you're talking about or somebody else? Um, No, that's Fisher Wang, who is also at the University of Queensland. Ah, Another Queensland researcher. Very good. The National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia have awarded nine PFAS grants and you were successful. Can you tell us a little bit about your NHMRC grant and how much did you receive and what will you be doing with that? Uh, So for that grant, I looked at human biomonitoring. Well, we asked to have some money to look at human biomonitoring to really overcome some of the limitations that our current program has. So, you know, we think it's a great program, but it's only in southeast Queensland. And now if you're in Victoria, you know, it's quite possible that you want to have some up-to-date background data from Victoria. Um, and look, we don't know if it's going to differ from state to state, but that's the idea of this grant is to um, expand the human biomonitoring program to look at um, all of the states and territories of Australia and to look at urban versus regional and remote um, and see if the concentrations change and really just to provide data for those researchers and communities and for government to use with which to make comparison. So it sounds like you'll be looking at geographical data this time, geographical pools instead of age pools, is that correct? 
Well, for consistency, we will always keep our um, age groups and also both genders and our replicates because if we change our methodology now, it will be difficult to make comparisons. So the idea is that as much as we can, we will keep those age groups, both genders, but we will expand it and, um, as I said, look at all of the states and territories. So that would be the first time that work's been done in Australia, that biomonitoring work for PFAS in Australia. Looking at it geographically, would, would that be a true statement? So our very first study that uh, the samples were collected in 2002, they were collected geographically from five regions of Australia that pretty much covered urban areas with one sort of rural and remote area. Can you tell me those five? Uh, so again, they were done by postcode, so they were done quite broadly. So there was southeast Queensland, um, there was uh, south that covered sort of Sydney and, and parts of New South Wales, also covering um, Melbourne and parts of Victoria. We had Western Australia, and then we also had a very broadly categorised as sort of rural and remote, which was postcodes that weren't considered as urban or regional. That was our first and um, only geographical human biomonitoring assessment you know logistically it was a lot easier for us to because we're working in southeast Queensland a lot easier for us to obtain samples from southeast Queensland. And that's why southeast Queensland has been the focus not necessarily that there's higher PFAS levels here than other places. Correct. So as far as we know, there are no other, uh, you know, systematic uh, monitoring programs that have happened around the country. But we're hoping to be able to provide some data that is robust. And because we're using the same methodology, it can be easily compared. Um, And look, we might see no difference. Or we might go, okay, well, urban, regional, remote, as you go further away from an urban centre, we might see levels decrease. We're not sure, but we're in the process of starting up that project. So that study where you looked at those five geographical areas, what year was that study done? That was from samples collected in 2002, and those were the samples that were analysed in Sweden, and we published that in 2006. The lead author was Anna Carmen from Sweden? Yep, that's correct. Did you find, in looking at those five locations, were there any where the PFAS levels were higher than other states? We didn't find any distinct geographical trends but of course you know we hadn't collected those samples specifically for PFAS and even you know when it was published in 2006 we certainly weren't aware of contaminated air you know that was not uh, that didn't factor in at all so it was really very preliminary data. Very preliminary because nobody knew um, how widespread it it is. Um, We talked about anticipated or expected primary sources uh, and exposures and I know it's not your field of work but I talked to a researcher from Queensland also Christy Gallen who's done work with wastewater treatment plants landfills biosolids and there is PFAS going back into the environment through the waste stream so do you think that because of those secondary exposures we might actually see an increase in PFAS levels in Australia? So I'm not sure of the levels, and I'm sure Christy went into detail about that. So look, any PFAS that's going into the food chain, of course, we could see that we're then exposed to that. But I can't really say that it's going to increase or decrease. It's just um, they have been found in landfill and in wastewater. Uh, I think it will will sort of be yet to be seen Mm -hmm. as to what those trends are. So too early to hypothesise whether those secondary sources might actually become significant? 
Yes, and certainly beyond my area of, uh, of research. Okay. And also, there's been a lot of talk in media and articles that PFAS are phased out, but there's an ITRC fact sheet, the Interstate Technology Regulatory Council, and they've done a lot of work on PFAS and produced a lot of PFAS fact sheets. And they say that PFASs are manufactured globally and recently increased production of PFOA and related PFAS in China, India and Russia have potentially offset the global reduction anticipated with the US phase out. When we hear that the levels are going down, because of situations like this where countries are increasing production, that could have an effect on Australia, do you think? Look, the only way to know is to continue our biomonitoring and to see what happens, you know, if we reach a plateau over, you know, maybe three or four collection periods, you know, eight to ten years and nothing really changes, well then, you know, it might be that our exposure has sort of, you know, reached a steady state. But of course, if we see different trends to that, then we would have to think about where that is coming from. In your biomonitoring, are there certain kind of threshold levels where action needs to be taken? So we don't, uh, we have never um, discussed or said anything about threshold levels or reference ranges. We really just come up with, uh, you know, the averages by age and gender and over time um, that are then used by other researchers. When you do the human biomonitoring for PFAS, do you provide your data to the regulators, to the government to make their decisions? Uh, Look, certainly some of our collection cycles have been funded by Commonwealth government. Some of them haven't. So if a human biomonitoring collection period has been funded by government, then of course they receive a report back. But, you know, we try to publish our work as quickly as we can after each collection cycle so then it becomes publicly available. So your work is just gathering the data and producing it and then it's up to the departments to come and seek that information from you. I couldn't really say too much about that. Is there anything that you know can speed up the PFAS coming out of the body for the people that have high levels? Look, there, as far as I know, there haven't been any uh, recommendations on how to do that. And look, maybe that's something that will receive further research. But um, as far as I know, there aren't any recommendations on that. But we do know blood donations would get it out of the bl- out of the body quicker. Look, I think if you look in the research, you will see that there have been some PFAS studies, you know, like the hemochromatosis study that showed that people who did donate blood, but, you know, that's in a very controlled fashion and they're doing it for a, a medical condition, um, that their levels do decrease. I'd like to talk about the decreasing trends. And when we say PFAS levels, we should be clear that it's mainly only PFOA and PFOS that you've investigated. Is that correct? Or have you been looking at several PFAS chemicals? So PFOS and PFOA are the PFAS chemicals that have been detected in the highest concentrations. And we have analysed for other PFAS chemicals, but those two are the ones that have been detected in the highest concentrations. And we can see clearly the decreases over time. So we're talking, when you talk about decreasing trends of PFAS, are you talking just about PFOS and PFOA only? 
Uh, I wouldn't say only, but predominantly they were detected in the highest concentrations initially. The reason I'm asking about the decreasing trends is because there's a lot of scepticism whether that actually is the case, and, and especially for residents that have high levels in their blood in communities that are contaminated they don't necessarily believe that the levels are going down in Australia because everyone around them has high levels. I think you do need to be very careful when you are talking about or thinking about people who are in a community where they are exposed from a particular point source to background concentrations who are exposed to quite different uh, you know, there's a different, as we were speaking about before, there's a different you know, set of exposure um, pathways, sources as opposed to people who may have had their water contaminated for the last however many years. So I think you do need to be quite careful about the way you present that because, of course, if someone is continuing to be exposed, say, for example, through water, then what happens with their concentrations is going to be quite different to someone who is exposed through, you know, dust and the food chain and air and that kind of thing at quite different concentrations. So I can understand if someone is living in a community where there is exposure, you know, if they say, well, my levels aren't decreasing, that exposure is quite different to background concentrations. So therefore, when the government does hear about decreasing trends in PFOS and PFOA, they also need to take into account these communities around Australia that have the higher concentrations because it's easy to look at decreasing numbers and think, well, we don't have to deal with this chemical. You know, look, you wouldn't look at background population data and say, oh, we don't need to worry about the communities who are exposed. They're very, very different. Um, you know, you need to look at what those exposure sources are. Certainly this is background population data, an average person, you know, a, a group of people, what is happening with background concentrations. The PFAS individual health studies are looking at people who have specific okay. exposure sources, very different. So your PFAS work on background levels needs to be taken in conjunction with other studies like the ANU PFAS health study, looking at individual levels. They need to be looked at together. Is that what you're saying? Well, our human biomonitoring program provides those background levels. Think of it this way. If someone lives in an area where there is no known source of PFAS, um, and then you have someone who is living in an area where there is known contamination. If that contamination had never existed, we would expect that the person who lives, you know, at the first place has similar concentrations to the person who lives at the second place, based on if we've just all background exposed. Now, if the person who lives at the second place has got a contamination through their water source, then, you know, of course those levels are going to be different to someone who doesn't have that contamination and the decreasing concentrations would be very different because of what they're exposed to in the first place. Even the decreasing trends we see in the general population, if someone starts with a higher level, maybe it doesn't decrease as quickly as someone who might have a lower level. Is that a fair statement? And look, that's something that we don't know a lot about, but there is an NHMRC project that is being started this year that's being led by Professor Joachim Mueller, and he is going to look at the people who are you know, at that higher level of, of contamination to see how that decrease 
does occur and if it occurs at the same rate as the background population um, and you know time from removing exposure to decreasing levels. So it, it is something that will be investigated. Professor Jochen Mueller, is he also from Queensland? Yes, so he is from the Queensland Alliance for Environmental Health Sciences, which is part of the University of Queensland. Quays. That sounds like very good work, especially if they have made changes to their water sources or their food. If they've taken the health advice about reducing exposure, are their levels going down? And he'll be able to investigate that? That is the aim of that study, yes. Okay, wonderful. I wonder if residents listening that have high levels could contact him if they wanted to be part of that study. That study hasn't started yet and it still has to go through ethics and all of that sort of thing. Uh, And I think that there are certain groups who will be targeted first to, to see how that goes. Okay, so it's initiated by the researcher where they do that research? Yes. How do we know that the PFAS levels are going down. And and when we say PFAS, we're talking mainly about PFOS and PFOA here. How do we know that they're going down in Australia? So in our 2014 paper, we looked at data that was collected in 2002 um, and compared it with that that was collected in 2010. And for um, adults over 16 in 2002, the average, and we're looking, you know, age groups combined, adults, males and females combined, the average PFOS concentration was 27 nanograms per milliliter. And by 2010, um, that had decreased 56% to an average of 12 nanograms per milliliter. For PFOA, for that same age group, it was 9.7 in 2002. And it also decreased by 56% down to 43 in 2010. For our younger age groups, um, with our 5 to 15 year olds, the PFOS was around about 24 for 2002. And then by 2010, it had reduced down to an average of 8 nanograms per milliliter, which was a 66% decrease. For PFOA, for that same age group, 5 to 15-year-olds, we saw 12 nanograms per milliliter in 2002, uh, which came down to 4.5 nanograms per milliliter in 2010, and that was a 63% decrease. We didn't have as much data on children, but from 2006, um, the average PFOS concentrations for children 0 to 4-year-olds was 11.4, and that came down to 5.7 in 2010. And the same for PFOA, uh, it was 6.7 in 2006, and it decreased down to 5.2 in 2010. So in the conclusions, what was your key finding in the conclusion for that study? So our key findings were that concentrations, especially for our adults and our 5 to 15 year olds for PFOS and PFOA decreased and, you know, around 50, 50 to 60% decrease. For children, PFOS had a 50% decrease. PFOA had a 22% decrease. But of course, the concentrations of PFOA are lower to start with. um, And that can also be related to different sources of exposure. But overall, this data from 2014 demonstrated that background concentrations based on the human biomonitoring program that we have carried out showed decreasing concentrations of those PFAS chemicals. And do you have an idea why? Did you determine why those levels had decreased? Well, concentrations of a chemical will really only decrease if your exposure has been 
taken away. So whatever the initial exposure was, and there could be multiple exposures, um, that has decreased or they've been, they've been, you know, removed, that is likely the cause of decreasing concentrations. So that was from blood actually taken in 2002 from people or was it blood that had been sitting somewhere for decades? So the blood was part of our human biomonitoring that was collected in 2002 and then again the 2010 samples were collected in 2010-2011. So I do know that Department of Defence started phasing out PFAS release from their bases in around 2006-2007 according to their annual reports. Is that likely to be a reason why they're going down? As I said, it's really any source of exposure and for background, Mm. um, you know, background concentrations, any source of exposure that is removed can result in a decrease in concentration. And, you know, we see that in occupational studies um, for other chemicals as well. You know, if people work in an area where they're exposed to a chemical and they have blood samples taken and then they go on holidays for however long or they change industry and they have more bloods taken, we see a decrease mm. in concentrations. Um, in particular for flame retardants, is, that's an area that I worked on. Are you aware of anything between the 2002 period and the 2010 period? Are you aware of anything that might account for that reduced exposure in that eight-year period? Because awareness hasn't started, you know, in the general population. Awareness only began around the 2014 mark for PFAS in Australia, for the general population, and probably the media. So I'm trying to work out if, you, if you're aware from your research, if you have any idea what happened in that eight-year period to reduce exposure pathway. And look, that is a very good question. And with these chemicals... You know, they're like a lot of other chemicals that the individual can't necessarily restrict their exposure. Um, so, you know, if you want to avoid buying plastic bottles that say BPA or, you know, you want to buy things that say BPA free, you can restrict your exposure as much as you're aware, you know. And if 3M stopped using them, if there were government restrictions or if there were, you know, industries have stopped using them, people can no longer buy products that are treated with them therefore their exposure is on the whole decreased but we don't have you know you can't buy a mattress that says this contains flame retardants or this contains PFAS you know we don't have that it's just interesting to me what happened in that eight-year period that has significantly changed or, or accounted for that reduction and it seems like nobody really knows well look you know maybe that needs to be an area that is looked mm. into in a bit more detail have you taken any samples of blood from highly exposed communities to look at in further research? No, that's not my area of research. Would it be helpful to have a background level of highly exposed communities that they've got something to compare with? I know I've had firefighters asking me, how do my levels compare with residents' levels that I know about? I can't actually give them somebody else's details. So there is a bit of interest at the moment with highly exposed to know how their levels compare with another highly exposed person. Like say a firefighter gets 300 nanograms per mil and a resident living in an area gets 180 nanograms per mil. That person knows that they're higher than the general population 
but they don't know if their levels are something that they should be very concerned about. Look, I can understand your question. As I said, I haven't done any work looking at highly exposed individuals. And again, it would be a matter of if that work is done, when the health study is published, I'm not sure how that would be presented. I'm not sure how people would, um, you know, it all comes Mm. down to ethics and how, you know, they're unlikely to list off high levels and... and Mm. I know it just seems like an area that research needs to maybe be done to cover the background levels in the highly exposed or or find some sort of average. I'm probably saying the wrong thing. What you mean is um, controls for people who have been exposed. So if you are occupationally exposed, is there an equivalent person who has done exactly everything the same as you in their lives, but they haven't had that exposure? I think that's what you mean. Um, And I don't know if that's out there Mm. at this point in time. There's nothing there for people to look at, no data for people to compare amongst themselves, their highly exposed concentrations with another highly exposed. And look, maybe that is the gap that you know, hopefully will be will be filled. Yeah, because then if you've got highly exposed um, populations where you do start to see health effects, you'd have those background levels to maybe help people know that health effects are not likely until you get to this level. At the moment, there's nothing to tell people what the numbers mean, right? Look, that is looking at health effects and risk is a whole, a whole area that, that is not the area that I work on. Okay, so with the work that you're doing with background levels, how many years do you think this work needs to continue to monitor for PFAS in Australia? I think that chemical monitoring is worthwhile until we see a plateau of a fair period of time and if we know that overall we think exposures have decreased. You know, if we look at dioxins, we see a plateau. We don't think that there are any new exposure sources to the general population. We will keep our human biomonitoring program going for as long as we can. And the beauty of that sort of program is that we have the samples and we have them pooled and stratified. And if we needed to go back and, you know, maybe interest decreases on PFAS over 10 years and and then they're not analysed, but we will still have those samples in 10 years' time, we can go back and go, actually, well, now we want to look at those in detail or, or for a different chemical. The next big thing that happens, and that is the real strength of the human biomonitoring program. Hmm. And also when I interviewed Christy Gullen, who was in the last episode, episode 17, when we talked about PFAS in landfills, she said in that interview that it's uncertain whether we've actually seen the peak of PFAS in landfills because carpets have such a long life in your house. They might be there for 20, 30 years before they're dumped in a landfill. So there could be a tipping point where exposure goes up. It might be worth looking at the levels of PFAS again in 10 years to see if those secondary sources are significant or not. Well, certainly we plan to continue our human biomonitoring program. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel when you found out you were successful with your NHMRC grant for the PFAS research? Very excited. This is work that we have been doing for a long period of time and very excited to be able to continue it with funding for the next five years and also to expand it to hopefully provide data that is helpful for more people and provide that background concentration for the different states and territories that may be in areas of contamination and are wanting to know what the background unexposed average person 
might have as their PFAS concentration. So for the next five years, you should be able to achieve quite a lot to help give a better picture of what's happening in Australia with PFAS. Yes, and certainly, um, you know, as as we work on this, uh, we you know we we might well, we, we might see different trends to what we've seen already. We might see geographical trends, um, and you know, you do one piece of work and that leads to the next thing. Um, at the moment, we don't know what it's going to come up with, or you know, what what we'll see. But it's certainly really exciting to to have this funding to be able to continue this work for the next five years. And how much funding did you get, may I ask? Uh, I got 415000 over five years. Okay. I imagine that helps pay for samples and all of that sort of thing. Yes. So that is for sample analysis and collection. Do you have any idea why the PFAS blood tests are so expensive to get or analyse? No, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what the lab's charge again because our work isn't individual it's really quite different. Is there anything else that you want to add to our conversation today? Look I think the strength of our work on PFAS is our human biomonitoring program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness, community or government awareness of PFAS, and we really hope that we can continue that collection, analysis and archiving of our blood samples so when and if there is something else of interest, of you know, interest to the community, interest to the government, that we can then use those samples and, and hopefully provide some um, worthwhile information. All right, I'd like to thank you for talking with me today for the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Next episode, I'll be bringing you a discussion I had with Dr. Paul Birch, who is the Science Director from Land and Water CSIRO in Brisbane. Well, it's a, it's a significant global challenge for, for the reasons we've talked about. I mean, PFAS has unique properties. It's been ubiquitously distributed throughout the environment. So obviously firefighting foams is just one uh, component. And one of the reasons it ends up so ubiquitous in the biosolids that we talked about earlier is because it's leaching from a whole host of products, fabrics. And, and as I mentioned, those unique properties I mean it's some people call it the forever, as you know, contaminant or forever chemical. And it doesn't stay where you put it. It doesn't stay where you put it. You're absolutely correct. It's, it's quite mobile compared to many other uh, organic contaminants. Dr. Paul Birch also spoke at the PFAS inquiry that was held in Australia at the Canberra hearing in 2018. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS. And you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.